a record of the delightful piece they're going to play this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. Your, your, your attention, please. Your attention, please. Your attention, please. And now the moment we've been waiting for is here. Welcome to uh, Wrecking Radio, our podcast that we have usually on a weekly basis. I'm your host, Singing on HD, AC with the person who co-hosts this with me, Solom Requiem, a avid debater, a aggregate of debates, and a person who often facilitates the platforms that usually gets this unique collective of personalities. So, can you introduce yourself? Ooh, really fiery opening right there. I like it. Yeah, hey everybody. I'm Solar Requiem. You can find me on Twitter, the same title, same as YouTube, and I also write Substack articles. So, if you're ever interested in being part of the debate or being on our podcast, feel free to DM me at any of contacts. Thank you. And then we have our special guest, a person with a fascination of cigars, an interest in Latin music, an observator of culture, and Catholicism. Uh, may I introduce to you the funky? May you introduce yourself to the audience and where they can find you at? And if there's any particular project you're working on, can you introduce them to that as well? Absolutely. First, I'd like to say in Latin, Salve! Meu nome is Robertus. So that means, hi there, my name is Roberto. Basically, a 31 year old Nicaraguan American from the DC area. And like my compadres just explained, I love cigars, Catholicism, music, and a good glass of wine. Also, you have, um, and considering you have other aspirations, are there any projects that you would like the audience to know about? Oh, yeah. So, I happen to run a cigar page on Instagram, otherwise known as Old Soul Smoke. As I like to put it, it's way more than a cigar page, so you'll definitely find references not only to tobacco, but to my faith and other great things in life, too. Nothing like a good cigar, some red wine right after TLM. I'll tell you that, though. That's one of the best experiences I've been having. And to be honest, for me, I mean, red wine, but that's like after brunch. But it's like right after the, that mass, what I like to do, I like having coffee with a good, great cigar, too. Oh, yeah. Cuban coffee is what I take definitely before going to mass. Um, some good old strong cocktail Bustelo that keeps me kicking and running. So it's definitely one of I swear by Bustelo, too. Thank you. Like some man of taste right there. If anyone who doesn't know, cocktail Bustelo, that is like probably going through my bloodstream as we speak, basically. It's. Probably 3% of my blood. Like, God, it was still, it's just so amazing. Even though a friend of mine from Orlando, he swears by La Yave, and there's other people who prefer Bilong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had La Yave and Bilong, but Cabe Bustelo, to me, it's, it's like an all-around great blend. Yeah, you can't really go wrong with it. Um, hey, Hazy, actually, do you drink any coffee? Like, any brands you go by? Do you bring your own? Crazy. One second. Sure. He just got recently new equipment. I think, and maybe just that. 
No, we were just asking you, we we're talking about Cafe Bustelo and different like coffee brands, and we were wondering, do you brew your own coffee at all? Oh, me? I'm just... Or um, Hazy, and then yeah, Roberto too. Oh, yeah, oh. I was a coffee fanatic for a long period of time. Um, usually, it's just, uh, you know, I, I usually just go with just anything that my friends used to pick up because they're from um, Puerto Rico, so they, I, I trust them usually with brewing my coffee. And uh, I take mine with like, a little bit of a uh, light cream and um, just uh, two sugars. Uh, yeah, they, they used to keep me on uh, good policy in terms of the quality of coffee I'm drinking. Ooh, nice, nice. What about you, um, Roberto? Oh, I prefer brewing my own. I love that little ritual that I got to do to make that small cup of coffee look aesthetically perfect as possible. Then again, like Ian Gallagher of Oasis once said, perfection has to be imperfect. So sometimes it does look perfect. Other times it looks imperfect, but I'll take it nonetheless. To me, I just liken it to the ritual of putting on a vinyl record and, you know, basically staring at my vinyl player, how the needle touched the grooves on the record, you know, that I, I, I live for big wish rituals like that because it's a reminder of how in today's world, we have to slow down. So to make a cafecito, you have to be, it requires a bit of patience and ingenuity too. And you really have to, you really have to pay attention to how the cafeteria behaves because if you look away for a long time unless you're that experienced you can time yourself it's not going to turn out as you expected and no one for my family no one brews their coffee better than my abuela she has a uh, gift grace by god to brew coffees and roll cigars i honestly she's oh, um, roll cigars too oh yeah we have um, she's part of a cuban family um so her daughter is the one that brought us to America like that, and she was definitely, she is the matriarch and head of the house in our family. We all answer to her, but we have lots of love and respect for our abuela, and you'll casually see her chilling in, like, Homestead, Florida, playing dominoes, um, is outside collecting mangoes from her tree, or is making flan for the neighborhood of kids. She's a woman of a heart of gold, and I say one of the best examples of a true Christian is my abuela. I love her to death. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that town that prefers rolling cigars, it doesn't... She's been rolling since she was like 14, I think, like 13 or 14, because like she's literally from Cuba doing that stuff. Oh, but yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, because she's from that generation that most likely sounds like she either grew up in that period before Cuba. From my, from my sources... The one reason why Cubans back then, even to this day, is that why it is so coveted by the American market is because back then, Cuba used to have a leaf. And it was known as the global leaf. And that was named after a famous Cuban plantation on the western side of the island called Vuelta Abajo. Now, Vuelta Abajo... Unlike Havana, unlike Santiago de Cuba, unlike Camagüey, Matanzas, you name it, even La Isla de la Juventud, the island of the youth, so to speak. There, it's actually unique. You know why? Because, one, 
It's warm, but it's not too warm to the point that it's scorching like it's South Florida. Instead, near around, from what I heard, basically like around 70, 80 degrees, like around that range. But the humidity is perfect for tobacco. And it runs from 65 to 73 degrees. Now, in those days, even after the cap, even after Castro and his boys took over Cuba, they still managed to grow the Cojo leaf. And that's what gave that signature Cuban flavor. But at the same time, more Cuban expats to Central America and the Dominican Republic, they actually smuggled as much Cojo seeds to those countries swiftly and rapidly as possible because they didn't want to surrender those seeds to Cuban governments. But in those days, at the same time, the Cubans, they still made banger tobacco, even though there was like a few instances where the leaf was susceptible to mold and disease, ultimately led to its demise and extinction in the mid-90s. And as a result, the Cubans, they created a hybrid between the classical leaf of theirs and other, and other um, strains of tobacco that existed, too, like the... I believe Cojo and Criollo in 1999, they crossbred those with the original Cojo leaf. So they all these have diluted the product, but I'm actually surprised you know about that. That's some good lore on there. But yeah, uh, a lot of my family is pretty split where a good half of them are from Santiago de Cuba, while uh, other portion of them were more um, northwest of the island, if you will, for like sugar cane. And um, for me, it's interesting hearing the stories about like such fine intrinsic detail among the tobacco leaf and among like these products that are like you know so unique to Cuba. And it interests me because I think about places like India, for example, where they're just so geographically located, where like salt naturally forms on their beaches, stuff like that. And Cuba has a blessing where that where that place is such geographically perfect. Where I would argue to this day, I stand by it. I still actually have some in my room. We have the best, you know, um, tobacco for Cuban cigars, and that's why we, you know, a good portion are so famous for that. Yeah. Even but, though, unfortunately, that isn't the case, because from what I've been reading, the Cuban government has been having trouble growing adequate products. I mean, it's that's what happens when you get the government involved in the private sector and then acting like they know better than the farmers on the land. That's that's just communism in a nutshell for you. That's unfortunate, like. Yeah. Um, my family, they grew up through the Batista regime, and they had to deal with him basically being what is the definition like an authoritarian capitalist, where he was a very bad man. He had his boot on your throat, but he let the private sector did what they did best because they brought in the money. And then you had um, Fidel in the Castro regime come through, and they did the opposite when they lied to the people. They're like, no, we are not Marxists. We are not communists. We're for the people. And then the moment he got the power and control, he stabbed like the people who got him there in the first place. And basically, he brought communism to the destruction of Cuba with it, where he tried to eradicate our culture and our people. And it's just, I hate saying this, it's a very heavy part that I have to say this, but yeah, I wish, you know, my country was free from that, the groups of communism. Well, I've heard some surprising stuff about the revolution ever since I came back to gave Catholicism a second chance. For one, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, especially communism in general, is a product of Freemasonry. In fact, Freemasonry is legal in Cuba, while Catholicism, for a good while, it was suppressed. I mean, to the point that 
mean, atheism was promoted like crazy, and atheists, I guess, communist nations, whatever, whether it be China, USSR, Cuba, they always go for the church first. They always try to attack the church. And the reason why is historically the church has been the biggest obstacle for, you know, all these regimes to come in. Because under communism, you have no God. The state is your God. You will worship the state and what it does and what it says. And that's the mindset they try to break into the people. And it's a very dangerous and poisonous, vindictive mindset that could be placed on a populace. But that's what the dangers are. Um, hey, you want to also chime in with anything too? Sorry about that. Y'all kind of right. Um, I was more or less just engrossing your conversation. You see, not only am I a person who is uh, not the um, most versed in the politics that are currently transpiring within those areas, but um, from the little bit I know, um, I do think it's kind of fascinating to hear your perspective since I do um, I do have a docket on the subject matter, but um, I'm dealing with a uh, small amount of knowledge in terms of uh, communism and how it's um, really um, being this uh, um, overwhelming force on top of the people. Um, in terms of what I was going to ask a question about, I wanted to know if there was anything, since you guys were talking so much about coffee, um, and uh, we were going to talk about cigars, in terms of your company, I wanted to know is there any like brand like in terms of your highly recommended ones like if you were to come to the shop immediately what would you recommend Ooh, that's a good one um do you want to take that first one roberto or do you want me to get it oh for coffee capital stello yeah capital stello is the way <laughs> no i can't wait till we get to cigars we can go on of that <laughs> now for tobacco that's the thing now uh, America, America's market is different because since 1962, all American cigar shops, they're not allowed to sell any Cuban products commercially and legally. Now, with that being said, there are some, there's some, there's at least a few lax rules that ha have existed for some. For, for some years now, like I heard that any Cuban products that have no more than 7% Cuban origin are allowed to be sold. Even though I've heard rumors like such as the Atabay and the Fire and the Bandolero, which are made by the famous Nelson Alfonso from Cuba, who is actually the same man responsible for the creation of the Cohiba Bihike and the Humidor Tube 2. That's like a travel humidor, but it's basically like a tube. Like you could fit a cigar in there and it'll basically survive in there. Like it's really nifty. Anyways, yeah, like any Cuban product that has no more than 7% of Cuban origin is allowed in the States. Otherwise, if it goes beyond that, it's not allowed for sale. Even though there are some products that somehow fly by and they contain as much as 12%. Intriguing. Um, what I want to ask, um, following up that, uh, what you just said there, is that there is tile creation that exists in India, and, uh, you know, it's really done in the, what people consider the most impractical way, but in terms of these tile patterns and creations, it's really fascinating and unique, and it's one of the last places that's not do it. Or how salt is created in Africa, and how they make these leaf packets. Um, people um, have these 
ancient ways of doing certain things that seem to other people impractical, but it ensures the quality they're going for. In terms of, um, you know, cigars and packaging, and just in terms of the region you reside in, um, when you recognize, or what do you see usually when it comes to ensuring quality, when it comes to creations of things like cigars? You know, when it comes to flavor, I'm pretty eclectic. I mean, I would basically smoke anything, but the way I do come across tobacco, I'm a traditionalist in a way, in the sense that I'd rather not smoke anything humongous. I look for cigars most of the time from brands that adhere to some degree of tradition in the sense that they have traditional sizes from the old war, a.k.a. Cuba. Something like a ring gauge, a.k.a. a diameter of at least 42 to, I'd say, 49. So that's like slim by moderate standards. That's what I prefer most of the time, even though the biggest ring gauge I would smoke would be a 60. Now, a 60 ring gauge, it's as big as a quarter. While the smallest ring gauge I smoked, it's a 27. So let's say that's like the size of a cig- That's like the, as thin as a cigarette, but it's still all tobacco nonetheless. I would never go anything above a 60 ring gauge because I don't want my cigar smoking to be a Herculean short. I'd rather enjoy it. Now, that's for that's for my purposes for ring gauges. As for flavor, like I said before, I smoke anything creamy, smooth. From that to the most powerful, spicy, spicy, we're getting something in between. We're getting something Cuban-esque that mimics, you know, the flavors from that island. But it's close, but it's not the same exact flavor profile. Now, what I look for. I look for a killer draw, great airflow, great air resistance, and even an even burn too, like it burns as sharp as possible. Like I don't have to relight it every single time. And it burns slowly too, meaning that I I don't have to puff every 30 seconds or so. It's like two minutes later, it's still going. That's how ingenious a cigar can be. Those are the best ones right there too. Mm-hmm. I say, um, me personally, what I'm looking for in cigar, definitely. I have five things I look for in cigar. And for anyone who wants to become a cigar aficionado or get into the brand, here are the five things you always want to look for. First thing, like Roberto already covered, the dimensions. Usually, you know, that's the ring gauge, basically how fat the thing is, like how round it is. So everyone has their personal preferences. Um me, I always like getting that sweet number 52. Like, I like the 52 ring gauge. I feel like that's very good. So, yeah, 52 for me, that's, that's perfect for me. Like, I'm good with that. Um, next thing you want to look for is definitely the filler, like where the tobacco is from, where it's grown, everything like that. I always like to go to Nicaraguan or Cuban. Those are my two main go tos, basically, is Nicaraguan tobacco or Cuban tobacco. Um, next thing you want to know is when you're buying your how's your cigar sealed? How's it pressed and put together? And that in itself is a pretty good practice because it shows you, one, what brand it is. It shows you, like, you know, how tight the seal is, how it's kept together. And some people say it's a bit superstitious. But, like, you know, like you said, airflow, that's more of a tobacco. Um, i say the next thing is, like, definitely the wrapper. So the brown, harder edges that's wrapped around the cigar, how tight it is, stuff like that, you want to pay attention to when smoking your cigar. And finally, Roberto covered this as well, but the strength. What is it? Is it sweet, savory? Is it more of a dark, you know, 
risk takes is more strong and then definitely the strengths will see things like you know medium full stuff like that you want to try to go i always recommend softer and just work your way up from there and just experience with your taste buds see what you like but most of all do not treat a cigar like you would treat like a vape or a cigarette or any other tobacco products because it's not like these things cigars are very unique it's almost like magical i would say where you have a nice beautiful blend like i always say this to people who first smoke it when you inhale, I want you to close your eyes and think about a relaxing place for you. All of us have a different. Just imagine yourself in there. Now think of the flavors the cigar brings. Think of the hints you have in it. Think about you know how it rolls off of you, how it feels in the hand. All these things like that. And I feel like you'll have a better experience. But definitely comboing it with something else. Or if you want to smoke it, you know, for your own. I personally like my cigars with you know some red wine. Sometimes I'll have coffee depending on the time of day. But definitely. That is what me personally I would recommend for the audience or for anyone getting to the hobby. But anything else? Yeah, um, I just wanted to bring this up that Kenya is a place that definitely does the um, salt that I was talking about in terms of creation. I didn't specify, so I felt the need to do so. And in, and uh, one man uh, definitely keeps up this um, Egyptian uh, towel making. It's been alive for almost two, 200 years. So it's um, there's something that speaks about tradition in terms of ways that people do things that might seem impractical, but it also keeps the culture alive and also ensures a level of quality. And it's also interesting to hear you guys speak so in-depthly about, you know, the quality and how to inspect for quality when it comes to cigars. Um, in terms of both of you guys, you know, since you are both uh, refined smokers, what particularly got you into cigarettes? I mean, cigars. Not cigarettes. No, that's uh, yeah, we'll get into the history more, but talk between like most cigar smokers hate cigarettes, like with a vehement passion, and we'll get into that later though. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead, Roberto. Well, for me, I'm glad you asked because it's been my fifth year that I smoke cigars. So, to put a long story short, so when I was 21, my first cigar was, believe it or not, a custom rolled Dominican that I got in Punta Cana. That I bought two for 20 for my brother and I. And at the time, I was smoking shisha, a.k.a. hookah. But for some reason, you know, I somehow knew that it was something that you don't inhale. So what I did, I smoked it like it was shisha. I don't know how I just figured that out back then at 21. Then from that time till 2018, I barely smoked anything besides hookah. And it wasn't until my 26th birthday when I decided, hey, why don't you go to a cigar lounge? So I remember looking at my phone, uh, near a cigar shop, near me, boom, there was Dab of Cigars in Maryland. So I took my ass over there, <laughs> paid 20 for a cigar. I don't even remember which one. What I do remember was how calm, cool, and collected that, that cigar lounge was. To me, it felt like a grown-up version of that hookah bar that I admired for many years. But it was just for grown-ups, and it was calm. So I told myself, there's something about this. I wonder what it is. So during that summer, I taught myself through YouTube. I read here and there about tobacco. I taught myself. But then it wasn't until... July 31st, 2018, actually July 30th, 2018, 
that was the day that I discovered Hoyle-Nigau in D.C. And I was like wondering, wait, what is this? Because on band, it's having the words, Antonio means meaning yesteryear, and the year 1970. And I thought, wait, that can't be. That's a car for $8 and half that year. Like, it's, it looks regal, but I wondered why it was it would be $8 for that. And I thought, oh, it looks good. Better get it. Now, it was like tapered on the head, and it was short. A 60 ring gauge of four three quarters inches long. And I remember at the time I was, when I didn't know what I was doing, I was teaching myself how to cut a cigar with a tapered head, aka like a bellicoso. And I remember I initially cut it first before I lit it, testing to draw, and then I thought, wait, that's too tight. Why don't you just cut a bit more? So I did that. I lit the sucker up. Boom. I felt like I was JFK in a hand sport in the early 60s, bro. Hell of a vibe. Hell of a vibe. I got... I got buzzed like a bugger, man. And I was like asking myself, what is this? This is freaking good. So I remember I got home, Googled Hoi to Nicaragua. Now, I'm Nicaraguan. I've been to Nicaragua nine times up until that point. And I knew that tobacco was a thing there. But what I didn't know was that Nicaraguan tobacco was if any beautiful in the Americas for a very long time since the late 60s. And I learned that Hawaii in Nicaragua was the very first cigar factory that ever opened in Nicaragua in 1968 by two Cubans, by the way. And it's been in existence since. And I was like, bro, are you kidding me? How did I not know about this? This is bonkers. I didn't realize the power that Nicaragua tobacco had. I didn't realize that my own motherland were rivals to the Cubans for years, to the point that Cuban expats have been going to Nicaragua. And it wasn't until three years later, the official Instagram page for Hoy de Nicaragua followed me, and I was like, thanks be to God, Dio gracias. This, it, it's trippy. It's super trippy. And I, I, I have so much love for Hoya. And then from there, I got to learn about other great brands. Now, I do believe that Nicaragua tobacco is the best. But I will say this. The Cubans definitely invented the product. But us Nicaraguans, we definitely perfected the arts. It's with a heavy hat that I unfortunately have to agree with that, although don't think we're out of this consensus yet. The Nicaraguan and Cuban rivalry is so alive and strong, definitely. And with especially who has a better product, but definitely um because of Cuba's situation, Nicaragua has been doing very well and dominating a lot of the market. Even myself earlier, I said I've gotten very keen and used to Nicaraguan cigars. And if I if there isn't a Cuban around, I'll definitely smoke Nicaraguan. <laughs> He's, he said, I can't, I can't, can't show up with straight to I gotta do a sink of you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wouldn't throw my whale and hide in the corner smoking a raw I will say this I mean, there's other great, great countries that made their headway. Like, lately, Peru, they've been making their mark with 
their own kind of filler tobacco, sometimes binders, same with Ecuador too. Even Jamaica has their own unique strain too that's used on certain Nicaraguan cigars in the market. Like I know that I know for a fact that foundation based in Esteli, they actually have a cigar based on Afro Jamaican culture. They're trying to fuse THC with their cigars, and I think that's the weirdest thing ever. And I'm like, of course, of all countries, that's to be Jamaica that wants to put weed in cigars. Those guys put weed in everything. And I'm like, why? <laughs> why? Well, that may happen, but, you know, what I'm talking about, it has no THC at all. It's actually a unique strain of tobacco. All tobacco. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you check out the upsetters from Foundation, that's actually what I'm talking about. Like, the filler tobacco is actually Jamaican, while I believe the rest of the cigar like the binders, Nicaraguan. The fillers are a mix of Jamaican and Nicaraguan tobacco. And the wrappers, they vary. It's like either Connecticut shade, a candela, or Connecticut broadleaf, or Habano, or even Corojo. But yeah. Right there. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's a wonderful line. Definitely check it out. I said from my experience how I got cigars. So I remember my earliest memory of childhood was being around my the elders of my Spanish family. And them doing the same things, playing dominoes and smoking cigars. Those were two things they'd always be doing religiously. And I remember just sitting at the table, being like almost infatuated by like, you know, like how strong like big these people are in our family and how much role models they are. And all of them would be wearing, you know, the wife beaters with the rosaries around their necks. And then they'd just be doing their things, playing it. They'd be wearing, you know, the classical Cuban fedora. And just sitting there, you know, music. Um, social Vista Club is playing in the background. It's uh, like Latin music, and I was doing that show, and I was always like infatuated by like seeing them like casually like smoke these huge things and just like play your game. And it wasn't until I was older actually that I was in the military, and I got invited out by a few buddies who were like party people, and I've been always kind of like quiet type. I don't really like going out to like loud places, but. I was brought to like some hookah lounge club, and I remember going in there, similar to your experience, Alberto. It was loud, blaring club music. I couldn't even hear straight. Like it was, people were like jumping around, dancing, and like I was like just sitting, like crammed into his lodge, and then someone gave me the hookah, and I was like, you know, smoking real quick. I'm like, I can't even enjoy this because there's like people jumping around and acting crazy. And then later on, I ended up going out on my own because I was looking cigars to get for a present for a family member. And I found a cigar launch, and when I go in there, I hear classical music, Duke Ellington, you know, Sinatra, Chet Baker, all these people like that, the, the goats. And I remember just having this relaxing jazz, the whole inside of it was wooden. There was, like, quiet chattering between people. People were dressed formal there, and they, talk, they treated it like, you know, hey, you know, this is a very formal, exquisite hobby, treated as such. And I remember having me, um, what was the brand? Trying to remember off the top of my head, I believe it was a drone 1964 anniversary. Uh, and those, for people who all know, I basically went from zero to 100. I'm just sitting here, and they had a guy come out, and then like his little like tuxedo suit, he clipped it for me, he got everything prepared. And I had a cigar in my left hand, and I had a Manhattan in my right hand. Um, and I was just sitting there by myself, and that was probably one of the most enjoyable moments of my life, just being around the atmosphere. Of like older people just you know talking quietly amongst themselves and music in the background was very enveloping, but that definitely got me talking to the elders in my family. They like go on and on days about you know cigars, rapping, things like that. It was a very calming experience that got me closer to my kid because 
to other people, cigars are hobbies, but I feel like to people like myself, and I'm not, I can't really speak for Nicaraguans, but I'm sure you guys too. It's like cigars are part of our culture, and that's part of our people. You know what I mean? Like that's still with us, basically. Like that's our thing, and that's just something I've always like enjoyed. Like that, I just feel like closer to family almost. But yeah, it's my experience. I'll tell you a short story. So, just like what Solar Vacuum just said, I mean, I have many great cigar smoking tales that happened within these five years. But there's one in particular that I look fondly, and it's one of my favorite memories. It was the first Sunday, June 2021. I remember I woke up early, and then I just decided to just water my plants outside, and it was a hot morning. And then for some reason, I had a Cuban Boy of the Monterrey Epic number two in my all my left pockets. So I pulled that out, and I had Bios Caracas Boys blasting my ears. Now, Bios Caracas Boys, they're this Venezuelan ensemble from the 60s and the 70s, and they're just killer. And they actually made some Cuban-esque songs in their own right, too. And there was, like, by the time they were singing Como Fue by Benny More, I was lighting that oil up while watering my plants. Bro, heaven. Heaven on earth. I was like, yes. I, I felt like I was on cloud nine at the time. There I was, just doing something that looked mundane, but it meant so much to me. Just watering my plants while smoking a Cuban. On a Sunday morning, <laughs> the first su- Sunday of June, gotta love it, man. Except no substitutes. Uh, yeah. Uh, were you, you uh, ask, uh, is it, I was going to ask, were you going to ask us something else? Uh, yeah, I was actually um, really uh, into um, cigar talk. And I just find it so fascinating that like, it usually there's something that touches really back to just a community gathering, which is really, really nice. It, you know, easily there's a level of sophistication that it, not only just in terms of enthusiasts when it comes to cigars, they're always talking about not only just the environment, the uh, atmosphere, you know, something that complements the um, enjoyment of a cigar. So music is something that often complements it. And you guys usually um, pointed out immediately the, the music that was going on. So is Latin music something that complements this in any capacity? Uh, or is there like a top choice for y'all in terms of Latin music that you would listen to when um, enjoying cigars? Oh, yeah. Um, go ahead and go first, Roberto, because you already know what I'm going to say for me. I, I have to stay loyal to Cuba, so okay, you go ahead. <laughs> well, frankly, not... I mean, live music, sure, if it happens, but most of the time, especially lately, I've been smoking alone, and and it depends on the blend, personally. I mean, I don't just, I used to just listen to Cuban music whenever I smoked because it made me feel like a badass, but then as time went on, I just go through musical phases. And then there's been times with certain cigars that I feel that they would be best paired well with like for example i do remember listening to the four tops you know that motown group from the 60s i was listening to them while smoking a cuban san cristobal de la habana prado 
which is a Habano Specialist exclusive that's only sold at any LCDH shop in the world. And that somehow paired well with 60s Motown. And I was like, this is marvelous. This is super marvelous. Well, I had cigars that were strong to the point that it made me want to listen to the Rolling Stones, the Strokes, you name it. You know? It just depends on my mood. You know, whenever I feel like kicking ass, <laughs> or just getting lit, even, or even like as something, now this may sound kind of pathetic, but I can't help it. It makes me want to treat a lady friend well. And there's only two cigars that come to mind whenever I speak about that a Cuban Monte Cristo number two, and a Gloria de Leon Gran Dominio Hermosos from Nicaragua, made by Let's go. Right, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, yeah. That's a favorite of mine. Oh, yeah. No, that has to like the Cuban Monte Cristo number two. Full body, full strength, but it tastes like Chips Ahoy, chocolate chip cookies. And it's something savory in there, too. I like it. I like it. I wouldn't mind having it in my rotation if it was somewhat affordable. Now, I will say this. That cigar, dude, I can definitely see myself smoking it with a lady friend by my side. Like, it just... There's just some, it just really has that like, you know, black and white classic Hollywood flavor profile in there. I'm like, wow, this, it makes me want to be a gentleman, you know? Makes me want to be a gentleman. 100%. And definitely, I would say the cigar is the vibe. Like, me, anytime I'd recommend this brand to you if you haven't tried it already. So, Luciano the Dreamer. It's, oh, um, that meant Sarah. Yeah, thank you. Okay, you know, you, that is one of my favorite because I always love, like, I don't like usually smoking seven and a half, like the really long ones, but that one I make exception for. But definitely, it gives you these deep hints and tracks of, like, you know, a mellow, dramatic noir, basically. And I always, anytime I smoke those, and imagine myself, you know, sweeping a woman off her feet and taking her away, you know, and just me being me, basically, like the king of the house, I think. That's definitely a cigar that has much enjoyment and much of an experience with it. I love, I could say, if I'm ever feeling romantic, Luciano the Dreamer is the one I'm smoking. And, like, if anyone gives me that present, I would be floored. I'd be like, oh, thank you. But you have good taste. You know, I did try that cigar three times, but, like, two years ago. I wouldn't mind giving it a shot again because I love, I actually admire the guy who makes that cigar. He's this Brazilian dude, Luciano Vietas. Him, he's a Sao Paulo native, but he knows how to work with Nicaraguan tobacco. In fact, him, John Huber of Crownheads, and Eladio Pichardoville of Tabaca, what was known as Tabacalera, Pichardoville, is now Takanisa, in SWE. Now, them three, they actually created, I'd say, my favorite cigar line right now like meaning that sure i have my top five but if you were to ask me my favorite cigar line in the sense that i've smoked every single size from that line i'd probably say no ds bar none the reason being because good the reason being because i believe that the no ds is like the perfect thesis of what Central American tobacco can all can be. It's like the perfect marriage between Cuban culture, 
and the emerging Central American culture in the sense that they get their inspiration from Cuba, but they still keep things Central American enough to the point that the fillers contain Costa Rican, Nicaraguan, and Peruvian tobacco. But the flavor profile, there's actually two brands that actually come to mind whenever I smoke those. Ramon, Ramon Ayunas and Bolivar. Like, yeah, what like mm-hmm. um, I want to ask, since you've now gotten to the business of being somebody who sells, um, what, what, what was that eureka moment? or What was that moment that bridged it for you, that this was something attainable to do on your own? Or what was the uh, uh, moment that this all became advantageous? Yeah. What, what pushed you to um, start your own selling? Actually, I'm not in the business of selling tobacco yet. I just currently writes cigar reviews. But that's something I'd like to do in the future. Reviews and all that stuff. Because yeah. when I hear you speak about this, you have a not only a passion, but a like a because I think most people can speak with a passion. But uh you know Pathor it's the only way to articulate uh, a, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to um our cigars and and <laughs> express them. So Exactly. Right. To, uh, to speak about. I missed earlier. I was we speaking about reviews and things you discuss, but um, in terms of uh, um, we've touched upon music a little bit, but um, Latin music in terms of both of your backgrounds, like what is something that like I know you said that it changed recently and it, whatever is in mood, but is there anything particularly that stands out to you when it comes to Latin music? You know, it depends on what kind of Latin music. I would say for me, um, my go-to recommendations for everyone is, of course, Buena Vista Social Club. Those are should be a number one in any Latin music and George playlist. They are basically, I would give the heart and essence of Cuba. Like, I love those people so much. If not, then Ruben Gonzalez. Ruben Gonzalez is a very phenomenal um, artist with his music. Afro-Cuban all-stars, baby. Oh, yeah. No, the Afro-Cubans be dominating. Like, people don't understand. Afro-Cuban music basically ended racism in Cuba for a large margin because how much we love their music. It's just, they always have, like, you know, such a good thing. Celia Cruz, I recommend Celia Cruz as well. She is an icon. She is... She wants a Beyonce could run, basically. Like, she is the queen for us. Like, people talk about Beyonce being that good. Nah, you look at Celia Cruz over here. That woman has a voice of a strong angel. Like, it's just beauty to my ears anytime I listen to her, but... Um, who else? Who's the other person? Um, his you know, Ibrahim Ferrer. Is that you say it? Um, Roberto. Come again? Come again? It's Ibrahim Ferrer. I can't roll the R. Sorry. Ibrahim Ferrer. Yes, him. I always like listen to him as well. Yeah. I will say this. My favorite Cruz song. It's actually a lesser known song from Larry Orchestra Harlow. Larry Harlow, that is. And it's from 1973, and it's called Gracia Divina. Now, before, of course, I grew up with Sela Cruz, but Gracia Divina, bro. You know, I actually found out about that song through that ten telenovela that Telemundo made about Sela Cruz's life. That's why I learned about that song. I was like, wait, what is that? that? That's interesting. So I heard the original, and I was like, whoa. It, dude, to me, maybe I'm wrong, but I can't help it. 
that, oh my, like that, the tone in her voice, it, it was like the perfect zenith right there. It was like, you know, you can hear traces of her early work with La Sonora Matacera, but at the same time, you can hear signs of her future career from Fania all the way when she made Asu, I mean, La Vida Carnaval, you know, her live concert with Johnny Pacheco in La India, and I believe that concert in Connecticut in 1999, her popularity in the 90s, that song, Classy Divina, dude, I will say this, the tone of her voice, she makes herself sound like an opera singer, but it's like, suddenly it's someone who sings for fun while she's selling stuff on the street, but she has that cadence and elegance of an opera singer that I believe if somebody like Pavarotti heard her, he'll be like, my God, man. I can't beat that. It's that powerful. And she does this song justice, bro. Highly recommend. That's what I love so much about Julia Cruz, too. Like, one of my personal favorite songs. She um, has a motherly quality, too. Yeah, exactly. Wholesome. Super wholesome. For people who are more interested in Celia Cruz, there's a um, novella. It's called Celia Cruz. It's basically the story of her life. But she started out around the 1950s. And it's interesting because she went through the parallels of both the Bautista regime and later the um, Castro regime. And it's basically the experience of like her going through these things from both regimes trying to silence her. And it's very sad in the story because it shows you like you go from one to another and both of them are trying to censor music. But um, Celia Cruz definitely, especially in the 1950s, um, Cuba had a very strict caste system. You know, if you had money, you could go places. If you don't, then sorry, tough luck, you're out of here. But the one, two things broke that barrier. One was baseball and the other was music. I would say those two were what broke the barriers. And Celia Cruz was definitely one of these people who broke it because she was able to especially get on these stages and all these lives of bands like La Cuesta um, Sonora. And it's just beautiful like hearing music like that. Like One of the songs that are from his earlier records in 1955 was Por Que Sera. Por Que Sera was a beautiful song. Just imagine the visual of the scene. You're at a small town um, outside of Havana. You have music playing. You have the vibes relaxing. You have people dancing. Everyone's relaxed. And then here comes a shy, meek woman who goes on stage who's new to the scene. The moment the lights go on, the moment the music starts playing, you hear a trumpet flaring. She comes to life like almost an angel spreading her wings. And she just gives the most beautiful song of her strong voice, her opera, majestic voice. And that's what I love so much about her. She's such a powerful and inspiring woman, especially her story, but how much talent she had and what she had to do to work to get there. Like... And to me, my respect is always to her. Celia Cruz, I love that woman to death. But that's my opinion on her. I will say this. Oh, there's no. Also, oh, there's I was always, say. No, go ahead. I will say this. There's been some other people who made their mark in the world through Cuban music. Like, for example, Machito. Him. He basically said himself, when he heard salsa music in his later years, he said, basically, I played this back in the 40s. It, this is this is nothing new. <laughs> you know, and he was lying. Him, 
John Oposo, who, by the way, in 47, when he collaborated with Dizzy Gillespie from New York, they both wrote Manteca, and that's actually the very first Afro-Cuban jazz record ever made that basically synthesized Afro-Cuban rhythms with the American jazz sound. And things exploded from there. Oh yeah, the history of music is definitely deep. I would say Latin culture, Spanish culture in general, like that is... I feel like each culture has their thing that makes their people speak, basically. Like, um, in India, you have their forms of, like, dance and artwork. And I feel like in the Caribbean, especially, you know, in Spanish um, nations, we have music. Music is our main thing right there. Like, that's our heart and soul, basically. And it's one of those things that I wish more people could understand, because I know a lot of people think, you know, they hear Spanish person, they hear like, oh, we have some work or something like that, but we have a very rich and beautiful culture, and that's something I love, and I'm eternally grateful for, and it's something I'm proud of, like, I say all the time, I am proud to be um, Cuban, I'm proud to have ancestors in Cuba from Spain, like, that's something I wear of pride, because these are my people, these are my stories, I live through my people, I am the next generation, and I am, you know, part of the family and eventually I want to be able to be the head of the family and lead it and stuff like that for my people. But I'm sure everyone has their own different stories, but that's mine personally for um that. Okay, um in terms of exposing people to the culture, since uh, I think you guys have shown an extensive knowledge and understanding of this culture beautifully articulated in this moment here. If you guys had to create like a playlist of just like let's say five or ten songs, what would you provide someone to immediately expose them to the culture in a way that gives them a good understanding of, well, historically, what is so advantageous about that music? That's a tough one. Let me think about that. Sam, I'm thinking because I'm just not going to include salsa music, but I'm going to include other stuff like cumbia, bachata, Maybe some of the Indian there. Chan Chan, Oye Komova, those are two that I feel like should be. And we're talking about classics, like, you know, like very famous classics. Um, yeah. Chan Chan, Oye Komova is another good one. I'd have to say Silencio is a very good song that's
Like for one, Birken by Orquesta Adolescentes. Now that song, dude, oof. It's just groovy, sure. It's an early 2000s salsa hit from Venezuela, but if you saw the lyrics of that song, bro, woo wholesome, 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 wholesome. I won't go further. That's number one. Number two, Mambo Rapidito, Orquesta Cocan from Cuba. If you're talking Buena Vista Social Club, baby, I got something to show you. Of course, Orquesta Cocan is basically the spiritual successor of Buena Vista Social Club. But, amen, amen to that. Original, bro. Like those cats from New York and Havana, dude. They make their own original compositions. But sonically speaking, they actually recorded in Arito, which was otherwise known as Pinar Studios in La Havana. The same studio where Nat King Cole and Celia Cruz recorded, bro. Even Sinatra, too, in the 50s. That same studio, bro. Lots of history. But yeah, that song, Mambo Rapidito, it's just fun, frenetic. Dude, it's just the the perfect intro to that debut album of theirs. Like, you gotta listen to it. Now, that's number two. Number three, I would say... Hmm. How about Kesa Sepa by Roberto Urena? You saw Apollo Sound? No, that's from 1973. Now, that's a unique song because the beginning of that song, bro, is just as funky as Isaac Hayes, bro. Like, the horns, it makes you want to break dance, like, just get down. And I'm fortunate enough to have the original pressing from 1973. Like, it's just funky as hell, bro. Funky. I can't get enough of that record. I'd describe that as that. Huh? I said in 1970s, definitely I'd give the titles funky. If you want to talk about a decade of music, funky is like all sounds. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Roberto Reina, dude, I mean, him, that's what I love about him. He's eclectic. While he's somewhat of a traditionalist in the sense that a good chunk of his stuff Actually, sounds Cuban. In fact, it goes to my fourth song, Raro y Sabroso Montuno by Let's and Tempo. Now, that's a song from my all time favorite record, and I actually believe it's the greatest salsa record ever made. It's called Sangre Nueva from 1977, and Roberto Reina produced that record for that band. Now, the song itself, dude, if you love Cowboy Bebop, I swear to you, that song sounds like something that Spike and the gang above. Or that bebop they would play, bro, because it just sounds badass, badass, badass. Enough said, man. Enough said. Now, fifth, I would say, hmm, Ohan Blanco, Monchi y Alexandra. Now, that's bachata, but that's one of the most well known bachata songs out there from 2000, but it's a classic. Like, every time I hear that song, dude, I have to dance. I don't care where I am. I don't care about the time. Bro, I just need somebody to dance with when it comes to that song. It's infectious. You can't resist it. Number six, I would say... How about... La Gota Fria, Carlos Vivas. Now, that song basically resurrected... Colombian Vallenato music, but at the same time, it sounds like someone 
punkish. But the song is a classic. It's been a classic from the Colombian countryside. But Carlos Vives, he resurrected it in a respectful, reverent way. Not to take away the overall tune of that song. And that's why nowadays, Vallenato is a respectable genre for Colombia. Now, number seven. How about... Hmm. I would say... How about... Hmm. Well... I'd love to include something by Romeo Santos from Aventura because that guy, he has his unique voice in bachata. The guy has a voice that's, it sounds angelic, but at the same time, it's tinged with a tiny bit of sadness. But that's the genius part because he's showing his vulnerability as a Latino man. From a culture where we're expected to be all machismo, macho and whatnot, but no him, he broke that into something that's natural, that's relatable too. And therefore, for my seventh choice, I gotta go with Promise. Him featuring Usher, dude, can't go wrong with that. Can't go wrong with that. Now, the eighth one, how about, hmm, how about, you know, it doesn't hurt to include Santana in there. Actually, I take it back. How about Malo? Now we're going Chicano here. Malo Suavecito. Now think early 1970s East LA, Cholo, lowrider culture, right? But just because someone's a cholo doesn't exactly mean that they're a gangster. It's nothing more than just stylistic fashion choice, you know? Now that song, dude, wholesome. Like, it's basically, the story goes with that it was written by a guy back in his high school who had a mad crush on this girl, and he wanted to write something to her about his feelings. And that's why some, wearing the song, there's lines that say, Never, I never met a girl like you in my life. Dude, so I'm, I'm always sold there every time I hear that song because it's relatable, yet it still has that like laid-back Chicano sound to it. That's rock, but it's just like, it's the right kind of softness there. Now, Nine, I actually discovered this the other day, and I'm proud of this one. Teresita and Miguel from Colombia, from a group called Grupo Baruch. That's from 1988. Now, Colombian salsa is just as great as the other, other salsa sounds made from other countries, too, like Cuba, Puerto Rico, the U.S., you name it. But Colombian salsa is something else. But that song, I've heard so many Colombian salsa songs. But that wouldn't particularly do it. So I saw the lyrics after discovering it on this one DJ set on YouTube. It caught my attention. I thought, damn, this makes me want to... It's just... It's, it's una candela. 
like that. I stole the lyrics, then I translated them to English just to make sure I understand what what's being said. I was sold, bro. It's a song made way ahead of its own time. And luckily, it's on YouTube, too. And finally, number 10, last but not least. Hmm. You know, this is something I got to think about, but not for long because of the duration of this podcast. Let's see. How about... Quinta Tattoo, Funny All Stores, 1971. Now that's a historic song from a historic record because that was recorded at the Cheetah back in August 1971. And that's a pivotal year for Latin music because that was the day, the night that a mix of old and new under the Funny and Banner, they played in a single night. I'm talking Johnny Pacheco. Willie Colon, Hector Lavoe, Santos Colon, Ray Barreto, Roberto Rena, all those cats, they played that same night under the funny All-Stars. And Quita is, I believe, an old Cuban composition, but they were reverent enough to keep things Afro-Cuban. You know? Even though Yomotoro appears in the song, he plays the Cuban, I mean, the Puerto Rican Quattro, Still, it sounds Cuban-esque enough in its own right. It's definitely a wonderful song to listen to. So those are my recommendations for an introduction to a crazy, erratic, and great way world called Latin music. Excellent. Um, <laughs> excellent. Your question, your, both of your answers are very thorough. Um, I was going to ask this question because when we have meteoric um, influences like Celine, Toa, Daddy Yankees, uh, Bad Bunnies, and uh, just these juggernauts on top of the billboards that are different than the ones we have residing within America, where it's um, understandable that someone does, let's say, a million in terms of like viewership, and then you'll look over to like meteoric songs that are made by Bad Bunny and see like 33 million, and that's like an easy, like, number to score upon. Um, the question, and even having, like, artists like uh, Drake collaborate with Latin artists, you know, poorly pronunciation and not very confident in his uses of Spanish, um, the question I wanted to prompt to both of you in terms of influence, culturally speaking, um, um, what do you guys see that in, in terms of, like, Latin music's global effect? You know, I can't... I don't know. I really never thought of that. You know, I don't really see music as like a means to gain popularity. My thing is, look, if it's a good jam, it's a good jam. I'm not talking about like popularity, like people just riding the wave per se. I'm saying in terms of like how sonically they've been so impactful that um, they've influenced other people musically. That's what I mean. I've never really thought of that, to be honest. I mean, frankly, reggaeton isn't reggaeton in general. I mean, I understand the roots of it. I understand that that's what's been in vogue lately, but that's not really my cup of tea, so to speak. But I've been open enough to explore it. It's just, you know, man, there's only just some cats that I love through reggaeton. I mean, I'd be lying to. If I had, if I claim to have a thorough opinion about it, 
know, I just, I just never thought of that, to be honest. Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's a bit tricky for me as well. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's tricky. As I said, but, but usually this is just me getting into, um, delving into culture. Because um, in terms of culture, um, you guys spoke very uh, fondly about community and, and that sort. Um, in terms of growing up and your your, um, your culture respectively, um, what do you think is like some principles that are like often endowed in you that are just unique to your culture that you don't like? Like um, living outside of it, that is like missing. What do you think is like a um, invaluable principle to add while growing up? Well, for one, if you ever go to a Latin party, you're not going to find people who are just standing around with drinks and talking while there's some music in the background. No, man, you got to dance. Yeah, <laughs> you got to dance. Yeah, I definitely learned to dance. That's my main go-to regardless in Latin music. Like, learn how to do something. You don't want to sit still during Latin music. Like, otherwise, yeah. Otherwise, you'd be deemed as what the Dominicans would say, a party wild, a party pooper. Yeah, we're not going to bring the Dominicans into this now. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> <laughs> <but>. <laughs> oh, gosh. But it's, it is what it is. I'm thankful for that. Um... If you're okay, I guess you're okay with a little bit of rotation and change, but I noticed you said you also post about your Catholic views and influences. Do you want to, like, go through, like, all of a sudden you came back to the faith? Because I heard you say you gave Catholicism a try a second time. I'm interested to hear about that. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, I'm a cradle Catholic. I grew up under the new Novus Order for years. But then in college, I became agnostic. Now, I'll admit that I became influenced by Enlightenment thinkers like Bastiat, John Locke, Immanuel Kant, you name it. But I couldn't, I couldn't blame myself because I was just influenced by the wrong people in a way, even though I still have those libertarian tendencies from time to time, just on certain issues. But not like libertarians to the point that it falls with the official libertarian party. It's somewhat of a mix nowadays. So that I was basically a secularist for a good chunk of the previous decade until 2021 came, late 2021 came. And it was, you know, that December, it was magical. You know, the mask mandates were off where I lived. So I remember, dude, you know, I was making a killer back in my old job. So I used to work at a cigar shop. And that, that month, man, that was my favorite December ever because I got to smoke while I was making a killing every time I worked there. It was basically happiness to the point that I remember on Christmas Eve, I was at the shop from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Dapper. I'm talking bow tie, slacks, you name it, because I had the feeling that it was a special Christmas. So they came to the very next day, Christmas Day. One, one of my favorite Christmases ever, bro. So the story goes like this. I wake, my dad wakes me up after 
I smoked a lot of a Cuba Pasión Churchill with red wine for two hours because it was an unusually warm night that night. I'm talking 60 degrees. It was perfect, dude. Perfect. So my dad wakes me up. He's like, hey, you want to go to Mass with your mother and I? We're leaving at 15. And I just remember waking up immediately after eight hours. Got ready fast. Showered. Put a suit on. You name it. Boom. 30 minutes later, I'm in McLean, Virginia. At St. John the Beloved. And I'll never forget what I encountered there. The Gregorian choir and the traditional Latin mass. Now, I wasn't hungover. I was actually mellowed out. But I paid attention. But it was to the point where, you know, I, I knew it was something special. I didn't know Latin at the time, but I knew that it was a throwback to a period that not many people care for. I cried during that mass, dude. There was just something like the French say, espiritual, about the traditional, what about the Trinity Mass? And I remember afterwards, dude, I was, it was, it felt like spring outside, 70 degrees. I thought, wow, perfect. So I pulled out a six year old. La Comena, La Comena Black Honey, made by Warped, that was actually crafted at the historic El Titan de Bronze Cigar Factory in Little Havana, Miami, Florida, 305. I was smoking that while I had Fear Elise, but the cover made by Vince Gowaldi from the Charlie Brown Christmas movie blaring in my ears while I smoked that La Comena. And I thought, wow, perfect. I didn't get anything that Christmas, but that didn't matter, dude. The greatest Christmas present I ever received was the discovery of the traditional Latin Mass. And if it wasn't for that Mass, dude, I believe I'd still be agnostic today. And I'd still dismiss Roman Catholicism and the Catholic world as a joke out of ignorance. Instead of taking time to learn Virtually anything I can gather upon when it comes to Catholicism. I haven't been in the same sense, but at the same time, I'm still learning about the faith. You know? I'm still learning. Faith is a journey. That's all it really is. I'm not born again because I got baptized and confirmed, but... You know? There's no going back now, so I can't say, oh, I'm born again in the Protestant says now. That, that sounds dishonest. That sounds fake. Like, I'm all, if I were born, born both physically and spiritually, there's no need to call myself born again all over again. No. Because I'm pretty sure that early Christians like St. Cyprian, St. Augustine, even, they never considered themselves as born again. No, they just simply discovered something worth defending, and they made it last for countless generations to follow. That's beautiful, man. That's 
Yeah, I'm sorry if I get emotional. I always like hearing stories of people coming back to the face because, like, I myself too, I was like that as well. Where I, for a long time growing up, really didn't feel my father's work. We always been blind. I always felt out of place anywhere we went. And I just remember my mom basically. Our family was our Spanish family was deeply Catholic, deeply religious. But like for her, she was just away from our family because of my father's job and she was doing her own thing and we didn't really have much religion growing up in our lives and she kind of just dropped us off at like some Protestant non-denominational thing and this is when I was younger and I always remember like you know it'd be the same thing you know smoke machines guitar playing loud music and it felt like more I was at like a club party and at the very end it would be like oh yeah here's the Bible works on the weekend or and then it'd always be seeing the same people doing the same thing and like <sighs> I just was seeing, like, I don't want to, well, of course, we'll all fall short of the glory of God, but you'd see people who were front row in tears praising Jesus the very, you know, the next day, just being bullies or being, like, not leading by Christ. And then to me, I was like, wow, you guys are our church. You are our family. This is how you treat other people. And it was just very disappointing to me, and I became very pessimistic. And I remember asking, you know, Eucharist, Eucharist leaders questions, stuff like that. I remember asking about Mother Mary. And then, like, everyone else kind of, like, just chuckled around, like, asking a stupid question. And then, like, our, like, youth group leader is like, yeah, you know, she's really not that important of a person. It's whatever. And I remember, like, his process okay. like, this doesn't sound right. And then I just got frustrated. And at that time, my mother, unfortunately, was diagnosed with cancer. And I became very angry and spiteful of the world and at God. And I'm like, why would you do this? Why would you cause so much suffering and harm? And I was just a very pessimistic, nihilistic person, and it broke my heart. I full-on just rejected any idea of God, and I thought anyone who believed in God is like an, 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 an idiot or an ignorant person. I was very angry. I was in the military, you know, wanting to hurt people, basically, and just wanted to get something about my frustration. And thankfully, the military has a way of humbling you, if you will, like... You think you're a big, you're top shot, you're a big dude. Well, there's always going to be a bigger guy in there who's done more things. Like, I I remember one thing that was very impactful when we were at boot camp, and then I was getting, like, attitudes, like, one of the first weeks. And I had a drill sergeant pull me aside and, like, you know, smoked every living dog shit. Which basically means, like, you know, him giving you the run on a workout. I'm covered in sweat, gear, sand, dirt on me, and I'm collapsing ground panting. And then he leaned, he leaned into me, and I always remember this. He said, I've killed men with more honor than you. And then he says, if you're not going to take a serious leave. And to me, that really, like, that humbled me. It put me in my place. And then after that, I was like, all right, I can keep being a problem child and, like, giving issues. I can play ball, play one of the team. And definitely that humbled me, but there was still a part of me that was always angry. And it was, like, despiteful the world for how things are. And I had a very close friend in the military who... One day I met up once I got to my unit, he was like, yeah, I saw him where, you know, St. Benedict's cross, and then on his finger, it's a ring. And then I basically was like, hey, you know, why are you wearing that? I was trying to be, like, mockingly about him, but he didn't get upset. He didn't get angry. He kind of, like, jokingly smiled at me. He's like, because I have, you know, I believe in a greater purpose. And then it went from us having, like, little spars, but every time he'd always get one up on me, and I'd just be too prideful to accept it. Like, you know, he knows more on his topic. And one day he ended up... Once we were chilling, I've known this guy for a couple months now and invited me to mass with him. And mind you, like I said, my family is Catholic, but my mother, she never really was 
brought us into that. And that's because she ended up marrying to, like we said earlier, my stepdad is white and his family is very Southern Baptist culture. So it's kind of like we adopted like the man, you know, the man's house culture. And later down the road, like I'm at Mass with him and it's, I'm listening the whole time, but I'm being very snobby. I'm just like being arrogant. And I'm almost like, you know, like, oh, I can't wait for this priest to be quiet. So I can totally prove him wrong. After his service, I was like, hey, can I go ask the priest a question? And then, he, my friend was like, yeah, sure, I'll be waiting for you because he drove me there. And I go over there, you know, angry at the priest. And I'm like, thinking I'm going to, like, you know, show him what's really up. Like, I know the truth of religion and everything. And I just start asking him, you know, very silly questions. Like, you know, oh, you believe in God? Well, who created God then? And like, very, like, like low-tier philosophy-level stuff. And the priest was very kind. He smiled at me. He answered all my questions. And it kind of floored me because that was one of the first times I considered outside of my friend where... It was a position of authority. I saw how a man dedicated his life to the cloth and how well-versed and educated he was in the subject. And it just floored me back where I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to give more thought. And then he told me, he were traveling this guy, St. Thomas Aquinas, into it because I kept going back, you know, asking questions. And I slowly went from an atheist to an agnostic-leading atheist to just an agnostic to what I consider like myself a leading Christian. And then I remember... I still was on the fence. I still wouldn't call myself Catholic, but I regularly attend. Later down the road, we have a deployment, and we he, he ends up going my friend to Afghanistan. And when we came back, I was like, hey, buddy, like, you know, it's good to see you again. You know, hugged him, like, everything like that. And then I was like, let's go out and get a beer or something like that. And he said he wasn't feeling well. I said, okay. Two weeks later, he wasn't answering anything. He wasn't at work. I called his mother picked up the phone and he is, he killed himself. He took his life. And I remember just being completely just groundbroken from that. I just like, I couldn't function it. And just, I didn't even process it. I refused to believe it. I'm just going to my regular routine. I was so used to, I remember going to mass and that was the first mass I went without him. And it's just, I remember being spiritual meaning and that song in Latin is a Gregorian chant. It's just felt so overwhelming and powerful. And I remember the we ended up doing the readings of um, Luke, and more particular Luke um, chapter fifteen, which for people who don't know is the parable of the lost son. And I'm listening as the priest is going to it's about you know the son that goes away from the father who thinks he knows everything on his own and he comes back broken, but the father says to him, you know. Well, first the son says to the father, his father, I sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robes and put it on him. Put the ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fat calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. To me, that just made me break down. I just, well, I had to break down. I kind of just accepted it where I'm like... Even though I don't understand the grand plan of things, I'm putting my faith in the Lord. And then I felt like I was at home. I felt like I was back in my family. And, like, these people are my family now. And, like, um, I got a really close connection with one for a priest. I still have his number on my phone to his day, even though I'm in a different state. And he's definitely one of the most influential men in my life. And his role, I have a great respect in the history of the church. And that's what brought me into Catholicism. But... That's for me, my whole story, but I'm very thankful to be back. And I feel like I am in a parable to lost son and that the father is in church and I'm back home. Like they brought me back home to safety. But 
definitely that was one of my main major things right there. That's a W right there, brother. Oh yeah. <laughs> I like to add something, but the Latin mass it definitely drove me to learn Latin to teach myself that language and I'm still trying to learn more Interestingly, Interestingly enough, after punishing that Latin Duolingo course in 77 days, my Spanish actually improved to the point that I, actually, that I can actually think in Spanish now. Yeah, definitely. What's it called? It's Latin is the Almost was it? No, it is the foundation of Romantic land languages. Oh yeah, the Romans. Um, this is a very interesting thing about it too, because like if there wasn't Latin, you see the root words in Spanish, French, German, English, Italian, like those big five basically, and all of them have like key roots to Latin. It's interesting how language works that way. Yeah, and it's gotten to the point where I'll give you an example. Back in my old job. I had to assist this Italian guy who spoke barely any English, but he spoke Italian. And when he spoke Italian to me, I was like surprised. Like I was telling myself in my head, I know what this dude is saying, but I wish I could respond. It was like a freaky moment, dude. I was like, I know what you're saying. I just don't know how to respond. Oh, yeah. All I can say is stuff like me mangio la mela, I eat the apple. Just basic stuff. <laughs> you know? Buongiorno, come stai. <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> Even though early on, dude, my, my, my Latin American accent it kind of butchered my motivation to learn Italian. But when it came to like stuff like French and Portuguese, like je m'appelle Robert, I got more in somewhat of an advantage there. It's very interesting. Great. Yeah. Hey, is he there, man? Yeah, I am here. And uh, one of the things I thought was kind of interesting is that um, um, from hearing both of you guys talk about it is uh, very empowering. In the sense that, um, you know, from having faith initially to falling out of faith to eventually coming back into faith and even the um, parable that was spoken out um discussing how how someone unworthy is once again found again it's um i think the idea of uh cosmically speaking that no matter the trials and tribulations um the good soul the um the um the common man, uh, in his good, in his good, in his actions, in doing as much as he can, uh, will somehow find himself um, somewhere on earth, and that's like kind of the interesting thing I I, I took away from um, what you guys were both discussing is that idea of um, finding your way back into the faith and understanding the limited understanding of knowledge that one or two being can have, but understanding that there is a greater. Um, asset of life that is um, there existing over you and thus can empower you and even invigorate you to move forward in life. So that was a very, um, I really um, enjoyed. This is one of the ones I took the passenger seat, you know, in the conversation and was listening to both of you guys discussing this. So it was very, um, it was, I was very immersed in it. <laughs> yeah, in terms of topics, um, I wanted to, um, 
In terms of your fates, both your fates, I wanted to ask you this question. Has, um, what is the biggest difficulties of just online discourse that you find with spreading the faith? Um, and what is one of the biggest advantages? Like, what's the opposite of that? Did you see what social media and spreading the faith? Definitely people, i say for people who are not Christian, like trying to talk about the face of people who are not Christian, a lot of them, their knee-jerk reactions, like saying things like, oh, pedophile, stuff like that. They don't have an understanding of the church. And this has already been proven, like statistically, is like very low. But on top of that, too, a lot of it was brought up through Hollywood to discredit, you know, Catholic Church. Like, there's a long history of the Hollywood versus Catholic Church. But so it's definitely kind of like, I want to say deprogramming, like, people's knee-jerk reaction to, like, they don't understand, or, like, who probably didn't look into it more, and they just only heard other people say it. For people who are Christian, is definitely arguing the authority role of the church, basically. Because I always say it like this, if Catholics, we believe, you know, biblical authority and church authority are all part of the same, while uh, Protestant would say, like, it's all, you know... At most, they'll say it's all biblical authority, zero church authority. But the issue you face when you have no church authority or no way like, for people to like almost show you how to interpret yourself like that, anybody can have their own interpretation. And it's kind of like almost like, I don't know if you've seen The Incredibles, but like Syndrome scene where he's like, if everyone's a superhero, no one's a superhero. And it's like, okay, if everyone has their own unique interpretation of Christianity, nobody has a unique interpretation. And it loses, it's like, you know... It loses its purpose and like almost dilutes it, basically. If that makes any sense, but that's my personal thing. For me, it used. I used to. I used to dabble with debates with Protestants, evangelicals online, but then once I discovered the TLM. Full disclosure, but unfortunately, with the treating Latin mass, especially in this country, there's a subculture that surrounds it, and it's quite a mixed subculture in the sense that how can I say this? And it's something I've been thinking about because it's now been over a year since I got acquainted with traditionalist Catholic Twitter. But you know now, you know, nowadays, my... My state of mind has been like this when it comes to faith. Because a lot has happened, frankly. It feels like I have a katana sword on my right hand. And I'm in the middle of a bamboo forest and I'm just trying to chop down these bamboo trees on my own in order to see the light. And the light is Jesus Christ and what he began. Well, eschewing all the BS, you know? You know, I'll admit it, I tried so hard to fit in, because frankly, dude, 
I wanted somewhere. I wanted to, somewhere to feel like I belonged with that mass, a sense of community, you know. But no, I've found nasty people within Catholicism to the point that they were uncharitable. They were just that much. I was like that for a while until I had a breakdown. I was super frustrated with myself. You know, I almost lost my faith. But one thing that didn't cause me to lose faith was how in Latin Mass, the real presence exists after consecration and transubstantiation. When the priest raises the body of Christ with both of his hands, and we have to say, Dominus meus, Deus meus, my Lord, my God. You know? I know that God exists. I know that Jesus Christ exists because of that moment, bro. During the nobility of the sacrifice of the Mass. You know? And that's why nowadays, dude, I just have way bigger fish to fry. Like, I'm not even going to... Talk about modesty and, you know, man, we just got to, we got to learn how to be charitable, man. Because real talk, Catholics like me, we may not look like we're Nucky Thompson from the 1920s Atlantic City, but damn it, bro, we have so much heart. We probably wear that on our sleeves. And I'm pretty sure Jesus wore his heart on his sleeve when he got crucified. Same with his 12 apostles besides John. You know, like, come on. Like, hey, that's the thing why people like us, you know, more importantly, people like you, like, people like you, you are the heart of the church. We are the lady. We are people who attend the masses. Like, and like you said, you know, Christ wore his heart in the sleeve, so do us. And I know people like to joke around and like make jabs at me if I get tearful talking about like biblical stories and verses anytime I get on this stuff. But like to me, it's it's more than just a story to me. This is, you know, everything to me. It's very yeah. fulfilling to know. Like and definitely like I said, like for so long people will try to like point the Catholic church for what they always think is bad, but no one talks about what is done good and from I want people like me and you to be more of a stage, you know, this is what the good is. And like the only time I ever get upset now is when like you said, you see like quote unquote like false um Catholics where they'll go in and they'll say things like, Yeah, I'm a fascist Catholic or I'm a communist Catholic. Like, no, you're not, you're not a Catholic. Like, do you keep that out of our faith? Or and way worse. Yeah. Or way or way worse, bro. They make fun of any Catholics who aren't white. Like, I know, that's what pisses me off, because you are, must, you are as much as a brother of Christ to me as anyone else, like, exactly. and that what pisses me off, like, did you guys forget the portion where they say, um, you know, Christ is for both Jew and Gentile, the Jews miss that part of reading, or, like, you're acting like, you know, this is just exclusive for, like, some group of people that weren't even around that period of that period of time, like, you know, yeah, I don't, yeah, that to use 
um, to have uh, this exercise of bigotry, but having some sort of more justification behind it without realizing that this is a perfect, this, this is a bastardization of the faith. So, I didn't mean to interrupt what you were saying. Just, oh, no, you want a nail on that. That's exactly what it is the bastardization of the faith. And like the Catholic Church, we have room for everyone. We do not tolerate, we have no room for people like that who use our faith as a blunt instrument to harm others. Like, they disgust me. And I, and any time, those are the only people who get me frustrated and upset. I, like, they are nothing but a bane to the church. The one thing that annoys me are how there's trads out there who go after people like me who use foul language. I'll admit that I do, I curse. Yet, they somehow give a free pass to those who say the N word. Who, you know, man, come on, like. There's there's so much better than that, man. So much better. And they're wondering, oh, why can't there be more people coming to the TOM? Gee, I wonder why, bro. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I'm Denise Arta, you know? I hate to be emotional, but man, I'm just... Our church is for everybody, man. Period. Just like with the cigar world, too. It's for everyone. And people forget nobody. Yeah, I was thinking about this. They forget First John 2, too, which says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our, our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you know gravity in that statement? To say, like, hey, I'm not just doing this for one small group or for people who like me. I'm not even for people who are hating. I'm doing it for everyone. And Christ came and he says, I'm offering salvation for everyone, even those who crucify me in this moment. Salvation is not just for Jew or Gentile. It's for all. And honestly, like, people, they hate that message. And it sucks. Because I feel honestly like Lucifer acts through them, or it's a snake in the garden whispering in their ears, saying like, you know, oh, treat him different. He's not a real kid Christian. Look at his skin color. Look at the way he dresses. Look at the way he talks. He's not a real Christian. That's Lucifer. That's Lucifer whispering in their ears and telling them this bullshit. And this is you know. Oh, go on, go on, my bad. Yeah, no, that's just my man. It's like you know, Christ for me is for everyone. That's why I love so much. No other religion. Do you find a God that comes to earth and sacrifices himself for the entirety of man? Not for a specific group, not for a tribe, not for any of this stuff, but for everybody. And like, they always leave it out. And he uses, like he says, instrument for hurt. And he's trying to hurt people, and it pisses me off. Like, that's just not anything like that, but. You know, yes. that reminds me. That's how I found out about the Eastern Catholics. Like the Byzantines, Saramalabars, the Syriacs, the Melkites. You know, groups yeah. like that who are legitimately Catholic due to Council of Trent, thanks to Pope St. Pius V, who promulgated how the church should be ran starting in 1570 as a result of the Protestant Reformation and the Anglican, what the Anglicans did, and other messes too, like the Great Schism, you know, stuff like that, and especially during heresies that happen, like, especially Arianism. Pretty negative Arianism pretty well, though. <laughs> That's one of my favorite story. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, for anyone. 
when someone brought up a radical turn on his Arianism to the Council of Nicaea, which is basically theologians discussing what is the Bible, um, this guy says something so down bad radical that St. Nicholas got up and he punched him in the face. Like, that's something that's so funny because there's artwork of it. I'm sure that Hazy could clip it in later for something like a video, but there's artwork of St. Nicholas just decking Arianus. And this is the funniest piece of art, but I just love it so much because you see the absolute passion behind St. Nicholas and that. It's something I love about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Trust me. Um, one second. But oh, yeah, definitely not. I'm cooking. Trust me, I'm I'm cooking. I I got I got my. I'm pretty sure we as we speak right now. But yeah, so, um, it's it's so bizarre. As um, in terms of what I think is a large crux of the faith is that compassion, that forgiving nature. Um, let um let one without sin cast the first stone. You know, if the world is born into sin, then um, speaking of sin, who is that? the agnostic one in the conversation. I think um, it seems like even even speaking as someone, as an outsider to some regard is that there seems to be an emphasis on compassion and, and an emphasis on that no one is without sin or no one is without um, that element sensitivity of wanting to it. So there's a level of humility in which one should regard themselves as a follower of the faith and not believe themselves to be above others simply because they are a person of God. So I think it was uh, very interesting. It was always very good that you guys really spoke extensively to that nature of um, sometimes malice that people often engage other people with or um, use it to justify beliefs that... Um, Looking into the faith, don't actually substantiate support. It's it's a, it's a um, it's definitely a misguided nature of, of handling people. Or if anything, I would think that the interviews that you guys speak of often turn people away from the faith. As um, um, have you guys um, watched? Um, I think it's called Midnight Hour or Midnight Church. Uh, it's a show on Netflix. Uh, Midnight Mass. Yes, sir. I was the word was eluding me, but Midnight Mass has this one character. Um, you know. Um, within the show itself, it speaks about the universe and it speaks about how, like, I think in terms of, like, being in even religion is that, like, we're a stepping stone to a greater um, aspect of, all, of it all existing and how it all functions together. And a man was able to find peace within that understanding of, like, existence in his final moments. Um, the main character just expires within the show itself. But there is this one character who is constantly deriding others for not being as um, of the cloth as she is. And it shows towards the last moments of her life that she's truly not someone of the faith, not simply because she can reiterate um, passages from the Bible itself, but in her very last moments, she's in fear of dying. And it, for me, any person who is uh, truly religious is this is something that is immediately quenched. This is something sedated. This is not an idea that is pervasive in their mind. Something of death being a fear of theirs because they are truly um, taking solace within their faith. So um, it's quite interesting that that character who emphasizes these sort of obnoxious, um, toxic element of the faith is also the character that these symbolize as the one who in her last moments had no peace within her soul 
but was scared of dying and almost did everything to avoid dying in that last moments when um, this whole town gets affected by vampirism and the sun is coming up, which is going to um, destroy all the make since they are capable of seeing the sunlight. She digs, she, she um, scrapes at the sand um, with her nails, like in desperation. Almost not even appearing as human, but almost like an animal in that moment of time. So it's very fascinating how. Um, yeah, Robert, I've not seen that show yet, so you don't have those. It's called Midnight Mass. It's a very good show. Excellent show. I mean, once I go back to Netflix, I'll check it out. Oh, yeah, it's a Catholic show, but it's very, very good. That's one of the few times, like, most Catholic media online, by like Hollywood and stuff, is like done very poorly. Where they don't understand the church, they don't understand tradition, and like how we do things. But I would say that show did a very fine, detailed job on getting everything right, and that's something I enjoyed a lot about it. You know, what's the one show that inspired me to come back to Catholicism. What's that? Believe it or not, Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai. Oh, Cobra Kai. <laughs> Oh, I love that. Let's go, Cobra Kai. <laughs> yes. Oh, I mean, the show is not by any means like explicitly Christian, but you know, I consider it as an epic because I don't know it's if you think the ultimate redemption story. Yeah, it's the ultimate redemption story. That's what I love about it. It's about exactly that's a Christian trait redemption. And the story, for once, it highlights out the importance of fatherhood. And that's something that the church has always promoted, fatherhood. Whether it's from the priesthood or from biological ancestry, fatherhood. You know? You have this guy who, from the old movies, he was the high school bully. The classic trope of a high school bully, the dashing blonde kid, you know? Oh, yeah. Abdino LaRusso, you know, the underdog. But suddenly, what seems like at first we're rooting for the bad guys, it suddenly turns around into something more humane. And I remember watching clips of that show on YouTube. And I was studying the show intently, you know, because sometimes with certain shows like that in movies, I don't just watch for entertainment. It's just more like, I love to learn something from it. And there's this guy who wrote this comment on YouTube, and thankfully I saved it on my phone. And it was a comment on a video of how Miguel got healed from his injuries back in that school fight when Robbie pushed him off the stairs and he was in a coma for a long time. This is what this guy wrote. This has to be, this has to be proved Johnny is the main protagonist. Daniel cannot top the humongous deed of rehabilitating a cripple. Doing that is also synonymous with the saints. Johnny even went to end time with a dying friend to his last breath. Daniel was not on Johnny's level as far as far as courage and honor. If Daniel would be an adult, he'd have just went on with his life ruining his business. Johnny would have eventually realized how corrupt his sensei truly is 
and figured it out without Daniel trying to be a holy saint to write everything. And that's the thing. If you look at the lives of saints, they didn't just attain sainthood for fame and for their selfish reasons. They attained sainthood because, for one, they did things because they did the right things because it was simply the right thing to do. But that came from their love of what Christ built, the church. And they respect that. And that enables them to do the right things. And they love doing the right things too. Are you like, are you kidding me? So Johnny Lawrence. He's a saint without even trying. I think that's the key to sainthood. Like, you know, you don't have to be a theologian online, criticizing Nova Sordo and those who go to it. No, you have to be charitable. You have to have love for people, especially non-Catholics. You have to have patience, too. No. That's my take on this. And that's why Coburn High also inspired me to go back to Catholicism. Because, you know, the way that show eventually evolved into it. Felt most of the time I was reading. Coburn High is definitely a very good show. I'd recommend it. Oh, oh yeah. Speaking analysis, I definitely would recommend the show. And I haven't watched it in its entirety, but I've uh, definitely uh, been encouraged to finish it from what you said here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I will say this, though. The fifth season is crazier than the fourth, but definitely watch the fourth season first before you go on to the fifth. They, uh, they tangential religious media uh, Solis would like to endow us with and the audience to, uh, to uh, really give, give them some media time, something to like, sit down on a downtime to engage and enjoy with. Oh, by the way, uh, speaking of which, just wanted to bring this up that I thought was kind of uh, important. Um, basically, there was this movie that was um, old-fashioned. It was basically like Fifty Shades of Grey, um, except it was um, a religious version. And I think that um, it kind of solidifies something I said uh, to Solis a couple of months ago. It's just this idea that like a lot of the Bible has very like dark and humanistic vehicles that are prescribing some lesson. And I think that sometimes um, when we when we sanitize stories to this degree to do an alternative narrative without um, providing um, these humanistic vehicles that humans often are in order to drive to these conclusions, we don't really get um, viable lessons and, and something uh, earnest to take away from them. We get a disconnected finger wagging for the sake of saying what is wrong. And it's sad because it, it's not really reflective of what you could be fine in biblical talk, yes. Um, so, um, or in just biblical uh, literature. So, I wanted to uh, get back to uh, my man's here, and I wanted to see if he had any media he would uh, like to endow to the audience, because um, we, we talked about Cobra Kai and um, Black Mass, and is there anything you would want to recommend to the audience? Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson. I say it's yeah. not a movie everyone needs to watch 100%. Yeah. 
You know, there is a cigar that actually pairs well with that movie. Believe it or not. That is a, yeah, I was about to say, believe it or not. That's a total order. What is it? San Coromiso, number five, from Dunbar Tobacco and Trust. Yeah. Now, people would often think that cigar smoking is something celebratory. Well, again, I love how we're bringing Hollywood into this. Hollywood also pushed that image of, you know, how winners and gangsters smoke cigars. Now, even rich people, too, who smoke cigars, but that's not exactly true, because I can attest. Realistically, look, there's all kinds of people from all walks of life who smoke cigars. Like mathematics. Cigar smoking is a great equalizer. Like, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen blue-collared folk smoking with, you know, hotshot businessmen, you know, who they thought that. I thought they were assholes until I got to know them. I'm like, oh, wow. You're actually pretty dope, man, you know? Now, you know, ill-mannered folks still exist in the cigar world, but hey, I mean, that's how the world works. You'll find battles everywhere you go, you know? It's just a matter of, you know, ignoring them and just gravitate toward people who mean well, who won't hurt you, man. So that's the thing. Now, with that being said, you know, Hollywood, I mean, Cigar smoking can be seen as celebratory, but, you know, it's what you make of it. And that's why I'm a big believer that you can smoke, you can pair cigars with not only food and drink, but with music and with media, too, like movies. That's why I believe that that scene compromiso goes well with the Passion of the Christ, because, for one, the cigar actually has a cross on the band, and that band is actually known as the Patton's Cross from the medieval France, specifically from the 14th century France. And according to Steve Stocker, who designed and blended the cigar, because that's actually his flagship blend for Dunbar Tobacco and Trust, he explained his choice for the Patton's Cross. It meant that the cross symbolized honor, courage, all those great virtues that he actually believes in. Who, by the way, Steve Salka is actually a former Navy man, too. And now he's basically one of the best cigar makers in the industry. Is he Christian? Is he Catholic? Who knows? He's t- he doesn't even talk about faith, but... You know, I wouldn't be surprised if he's Catholic. You know? I, would, I really wouldn't be surprised. He is very soft in his faith. I'll give you that, who you're speaking of. Like, yeah. these people will like, there's some people in history who they never really go public about, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Like, yeah. You know, some people worship in different ways like that. Well, other people, like, and now this guy is actually one of my inspirations Nick Noilo of Foundation Cigars. He's this, like, kind of short but energetic Italian dude from Connecticut. And this guy loves Nicaragua tobacco. But that guy, what I love about him is that he's actually Ethiopian Orthodox Christian, and that's why certain 
sub-brands from Foundation actually have Christian themes. Like, for example, take a look at the Tabernacle. The original blend and the Havana's CT number 142, they both have a portrait of the late emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie, on the band. And that's because Haile Selassie was actually the direct descendant of King Solomon from Judea. Yeah. So, I mean, the guy references his Ethiopian Orthodox Christian faith on Instagram, you know, and even on his cigars, too. So I was thinking, you know, this guy is embraced by the industry, even when it comes to disclosing his faith. You know, why can't I do the same? But with Roman Catholicism, and so... I was fortunate to have that kind of a platform, and lately I've been making references to the TLM, whether people like it or not. It's more like, you know, that's why I often tell people, hey, you know, it's more than just a cigar cage. Way more. It's more like, like, hey, dude, I'm like, hey, yo, this is dope. I I just want to show you guys this. You know, the sacrifice. The thing that's it's not the thing, but you know, it's just, man. It, like I said, if it wasn't for the traditional lab mass, I'd still be agnostic. That's beautiful, man. Mm-hmm. When this is gonna be, I feel like my closing thing for we're talking about saints and what it does to make a saint. I feel like. My best example of what a saint is has to be to Saint Jose Luis Sanchez de Rio. For people who don't know, he was a 14 year old boy in 1920s Mexico during the Crystal War. The Crystal War was the rebels basically fighting against um, this new Mexican constitution that was declaring, you know, Mexico was like to be a anti-religious, pro-secular, pro-atheistic, um, you know, socialist nation. And you had people fighting back against that. He was a 14-year-old boy, and the rebels couldn't enlist him, so he decided to be a protector of the church and give it to the church. And unfortunately, one day on February 10th, 1928, a group of government men came there to destroy the church, but he refused to let them do it. So what did they do? They take the young boy, they beat him, and then they torture him. And then the whole time he was crying out in pain, they would laugh at the boy and they would shout in his face, um, say these words, say death to Christ the King. And they keep saying it and say, you do that, we'll spare your life. The boy could have easily done that, but he didn't. In fact, he done something that was the opposite. He shouted, I will never give in. Viva Cristo Rey y Santa Maria de Guadalupe. He shouted that to his lungs, and then with that, they killed the 14-year-old boy. They beat his body, and they killed him as brutal way possible. This story, to me, I've always held close to my heart, because not only was he just a child, but faced against all great evil, he still stood his ground, and he still wanted to be a protector. And to me, that's just, if I could be half the man as that boy was, I would be happy in my life. And to me, that is what defines a saint. To where you have literally devils laughing in your ear saying, just say Christ isn't king, say Christ is dead, we'll free you. And he refused to do that. And to me, that's a very moment in his dying moments. They could take his life, they couldn't take his spirit. And the thing you notice about any dictatorship that tries to kill God or any groups of people that do it, 
a tyrant dies, his legacy ends. You have a martyr die, his legacy begins. And that's the story that's always held close to my heart for him. And he was... I pray for him every, every day. I hope the kid's okay. And I know he's looking down at And he's just very inspirational to me. But... Um... Hazy, Roberto, where is there anything else you guys want to be saying on this? Well, go ahead, Button. You are the guest. Yeah, pretty well. Go ahead. True, true, true. Well, the thing is, you know, it's getting quite the ride so far. And I'll admit it, I prefer going to the TOM, but I'm actually more open to checking out the other 23 Catholic rights because the way I see it it's like that Avatar 1 moment back in The Legend of Korra back when after spending a good chunk of his life on that lion turtle that gives people the ability to firebend including himself now this was the era before the Avatar was even a thing Why do I bring this up? Because, you know, during his journey, after running across other spirit animals, there's a moment where one of the spirit animals say, don't you have another lion turtle go to? Something like that. And he's like, what? There's other lion turtles? Like, Juan is surprised. That's, how, that's exactly how I felt when I found out about the Eastern Catholics. I was like, what? There's actually other Catholics out there who, wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah, like they they don't they don't go to Latin mass, but they have their own liturgical rites, their own ways to do the sacrifice. But at the same time, they're still in communion with Rome, and legitimately so. I'm like, yo, what? I was like, legitimately shocked, man. Like, the Byzantines, I mean, they've been having their thing since the Eastern Roman Empire was a thing, basically. Sarah Malabar's from India, that came from St. Thomas the Apostle. The Malachites, that came from St. Mark, who set up his, the church in Alexandria in Egypt. Oh. And the Ukrainians, the Greeks, they have their own liturgical rights too as far as I'm concerned and finally I actually heard about other liturgical rights within the Latin church too like the Ambrosian rites, Galician the York rites from England and especially other rites that actually exist within the Catholic orders too like the Carmelites the Dominicans you name it. And I've actually been to a Dominican rite. It's just slightly different, but still, it's still the Latin rite, you know? They just place somewhat of an emphasis on St. Dominic. But they, we don't worship St. Dominic, but we only venerate him. It's more, I'd say it's akin to like a hip-hop producer sampling a certain record to make a point, so to speak. You know? But yeah, like, it's been a ride, and I'm still learning. You know, I I don't think I'll ever, and I mean ever, 
know everything about Catholicism because St. Thomas Aquinas attempted to do that until one day God basically told him, Yeah, you know know too much, just relax, just relax, just believe, okay, just have faith. And St. Thomas Aquinas, he finally relented and said, Fine. And that's when he actually stopped writing Soma Contra Gentilis because of that moment. And to his dying breath, he was writing as well. Like, that was the day of his death. Um, he was actually writing some of his works, but yeah, let's pray for this holy guy. <laughs> but, um, I think it's getting to that time, guys. I, this is a really good episode of the podcast. Hazy, is there anything you want to say before we close up shop? And as uh, always, before we close our shop, uh, thank you to Roberto for coming on and uh, speaking to us and really divulging your insight on culture, um, cigars, and many other subject matters we touched on today. Um, I'm Hazy Dialects, and you've seen it all in HD. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, one last thing before we go. I have to just do this. Um, what is a cigar you recommend to someone that's like on top of your head right now? Top of my head? Yes. Like, what's the cigar you recommend? Placencia Reserva Original in the Toro. That's 6550, but still, it works. And I will say this, two things about it. One, malt medium in strength. Medium in body. It's not that feisty. It's mild, but not mild like it's creamy. It's mild in the sense that it's not going to rock your socks off much. No? And it's a great introduction to the cigar world like it's approachable yet it's all the gauntlet and I'm not trying to make a question it's strictly Central American nice Um, next question I would leave off with both of your I would leave that here what is your um, if you could like uh, just just think of yourself as the avatar you're you're, you're, you're the uh, cigar vendor if you will Uh, (laughs) what would be your ideal cigar if you could just um, uh, manifested uh, just before you. What will be the uh, taste and uh, scent? What would that look to you? You could describe to the audience. Hmm. Well, I'd like to say this first. I should have said this earlier. Like, I prefer thin ring gauges from a ring gauge from 42 to 49. So, that being said, I prefer Coronas, Petit Coronas, Lonsdales, certain Churchills. Double and double Coronas, all made in the classical Cuban dimensions. Now, with that being said, so perfect length for me, five and a half inches with a 42 ring gauge. The strength, medium full. It's not that powerful, but still powerful in general. You know, <laughs> it's not that spicy either. It's all Nicaraguan. But barely anything from La Isla de Ometepe, Ometepe Island, which is an island in Lake Nicaragua. I actually prefer tobaccos from Esteli, Condega, and Jalapa. And that's all blended to create something. You know, I prefer some fruity nuances to my blends because I eat fruits. You know, that's basically my snack. Basically daily. I'll prefer coffee notes. Earth, definitely earth. Earth has to be the backbone. And finally, to top it off, hints 
creaminess, that unites the light fruitiness to. To me, it's got to taste something like a cross between my favorite Cuban, which is Hoyo de Monterrey, Epicure number two, and my favorite cigar of all time, which is a one-off from Illusion. And the one-off actually has the peace sign on it. And the, that one-off has to be in the Corona size. That's why it shows five and a half by 42. Dude, it just makes me feel baller. Like, I mean, I've smoked Davidoffs. I've smoked some high-end stuff in my own right. I've smoked Cubans. I've even smoked a 42-year-old Cohiba Lancero from 1980 for crying out loud. Yeah, believe it or not. Yeah, $300 in flames, basically. And that was actually gifted to me, too, man. You know? <laughs> but yeah, man, I've had all that stuff. I'm way more happier with that one-off, man. Oh, yeah. So that would be my dream cigar right there. Let me see what mine being. Mine would be very similar to an H-Up Man number two, I'd say. So I would definitely go for... Um, made in Cuba, Fillers Cuba, Binders Cuba, Rappers Cuba. But dimensions, I'd say good six inch, five, and like 42 ring gauge, because that's usually what my go to is. And more of a medium to bolder flavor and strength like that in films. I'm looking more for a more nutmeg, cinnamon, and salted peanut flavor of it all to intensify while, you know, like enjoying one of these. So that's definitely some of my go to's right there. Like, that's probably, yeah, I'd say that's my go to. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Yeah. Wait, one more thing. Now, a couple of I recommended. Now, for anybody out there who are bourbon freaks, if you like Monkey Shorter, that actually goes well with that Placentia Reserve Alvinal because I kid you not. One swig of that Monkey Shorter is going to turn that cigar into vanilla without the sugar. Ooh. Oh, yeah. I kid you not, dude. I can attest big time. I was actually shocked. So you're going to thank me for this. It does go well with bourbon, too, not just rum. Yep. I think that's just it for me. Um, Hazy, anything else? No, um, I'm done. I've asked all my questions. And uh, this is the conclusion. Yeah, that's a good idea. Hey, it's good to have you on, and you're always welcome back, man. That was awesome. Absolutely. Uh, I'd be down for this in the future, man. Oh, yeah. Brother, man. <laughs> All right. Um, Hazy, you want to close, close us off? Yes, I am. Um, thank you for watching Record Room Radio. I appreciate Roberto for being uh, coming in and sharing his insight. And, of course, as always... I appreciate Solis for um, bringing always these unique guests onto the podcast. And of course, Asia Dallas, you can follow me on Twitter. And hopefully you also look to these people as well on other social media platforms. But, hey, you know, that's very good questions, too. Those are really good questions we gave to Roberto and I. So appreciate it. <laughs> I might not be able to find much in commentary, but I hope it's really a gap guided and navigate the conversation quite well enough. For it to be a um viewing and listening experience for the audience at home. So, uh, you've seen this all in AC, and uh, until next time, peace. Okay. Yo.